Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen talks freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is John Ziegler. John is a documentary filmmaker, author, and former TV sportscaster and radio talk show host. He is most well known for his second feature documentary film, Media Malpractice, about the 2008 presidential election. And he's appeared on numerous national TV shows as a guest, including the Today Show, The View. Uh, he attended Georgetown University, and while he grew up in Pennsylvania, he has no direct ties to Penn State, and that's important because today he's here to talk about a decade-long investigation he's done into what most people probably remember as the Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal at that prominent university. So, John, welcome to the show. Tom, thanks for having me. So just to reorient the audience uh, to what you're about to talk about, I'm going to summarize the case as most people, including me a week ago, understood it and remembered it. And that's that in 2011, a media story broke about Penn State football coach Joe Paterno's former defensive coordinator, Jerry Sandusky. And the story alleged that he was a pedophile who had sexually abused numerous young boys before and after his tenure on Paterno's staff, and that high-ranking officials of the university, including Paterno himself, knew about Sandusky's crimes and covered them up, uh, resulting in Sandusky being free to continue to uh, harm other children. So, John, you say that not only is nothing about the story I just told true, and I mean nothing but that you can prove it. Uh, before we get into some of the proof, what motivated you to start investigating this case and then stay with it for so long? Well, back in November of 2011, I was um, a documentary filmmaker, which you've already cited. Um, you know, my previous two films had been well-received, especially in conservative circles. Uh, the previous one, Media Malpractice, had debuted on the Today Show in a contentious interview with Matt Lauer and um and I was looking for a next project and the story exploded out of State College Pennsylvania and it never made any sense to me the the Joe Paterno part of it because the Joe Paterno part of it was what made news back in November 2011 which is part of this perfect storm that uh really facilitates this monumental injustice which has transpired over the last 11 years if you take the joe paterno angle out of this i believe the entire story is different but i was looking at it not from the perspective of jerry sandusky who i presumed well, must be guilty of most if not all of what he's being accused of it sounded horrific but the joe paterno angle made no sense whatsoever and i was somebody who well, I didn't go to Penn State. I grew up in Pennsylvania in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I knew of Penn State. Wasn't a fan, but didn't dislike them, respected Joe Paterno. But I'd also coached high school football. I had covered college and pro football as a sportscaster. I was intimately familiar with the culture of football, the culture of Penn State. 
And frankly, I also have a very good BS detector. And the original story that got so much play, which is that a, a former assistant coach at Penn State, then a graduate assistant at Penn State by the name of Mike McQuarrie, had walked in on Jerry Sandusky anally raping a 10-year-old boy in a Penn State shower. He immediately told Joe Paterno about it. And then Penn State did nothing about it. And Jerry Sandusky continued to be a free man for another 10 years before this was ever known publicly. That is a story that is patently absurd on its face. Now, sometimes absurd things happen. Uh, sometimes very strange things happen in life. Uh, but when you make an allegation like that, you need to be, one, able to tell a story that has some semblance of sense uh, associated to it. But you also have to have some evidence. And this story's evidence didn't have anything close to what would be required for a story that was immediately being accepted as gospel by the news media. I mean, in two days, I mean, this, there's so many absurdities to this whole situation. But in two days, the news media, which, you know, knew nothing. They didn't know any of the names of any of the people. They didn't haven't spoken to anyone because no one was speaking at the time. The news media decided they knew exactly what happened in this story in two or three days. And that would be laughable under any circumstances. But as someone who has investigated this as deeply as any Anybody else on the planet, probably more deeply than anyone else on the planet. I can tell you there's still things today, 11 years later, that we're learning about the case. I mean, significant things. And so so just the idea that the news media thought they knew, you know, everything that there was to know within two or three days, which then facilitated Joe Paterno's firing, the president of Penn State, Graham Spaniard's firing, uh, two Penn State administrators being put on leave and, and have, after having been indicted. That's just ridiculous. And what I found, you know, I, I realized this story was built for me uh, or vice versa. I was built for the story because of the background I've had in both the sports media and the news media, how I did not trust the media on a story like this at all. Because one of the things I knew even back in 2011 is that in a particular type of story, the news media is incredibly vulnerable to blowing it. And this had all of the attributes of a story that the news media would blow. You have a moral panic involving child sex abuse. You have a celebrity involving Joe Paterno. You have a time constraint situation because Joe Paterno was supposed to coach his last home game at Penn State that Saturday on the very network that was driving the coverage, ESPN, which had nothing to talk about that week because baseball had just ended. The NBA was on strike. College basketball hadn't started yet. Football was in its lull. No one cares about hockey in early November. So so this was a, a, a situation that immediately my spidey senses were tingling, but I had no idea when I got involved in it 11 years later that not just the Joe Paterno angle of this story would be BS, not just the Penn State cover-up angle of this story would be BS, be, be BS, but I would later learn with absolute certitude that the only way to make this story make any sense at all is if even Jerry Sandusky is completely innocent, which I now believe the evidence is overwhelming, then in fact, much to the shock of people who haven't been following this, yes, he's 100% innocent. And I'm I'm not even really a big fan of the guy. I mean, I've interviewed him twice in prison for, for many hours. 
Uh, you know, he's a very naive guy, a very Christian guy, very stubborn guy uh, who got himself into a very horrible situation and could not get himself out, largely because the news media was so deeply, deeply invested in his guilt. And then Penn State became invested in his guilt, as did the entire community of State College. And everything that's transpired since then has been the worst travesty of, of injustice that I've ever experienced in in my lifetime, um, you know, and and it's probably not even close because of the number of people that were unjustly accused and went to prison for things that didn't happen and the number of people who made millions and millions of dollars from something that didn't happen. And so that's why we created the podcast with the benefit of hindsight, which is an epic podcast. It's got, you know, some 20 some episodes with probably 70 hours of content and then we also put out all the raw interviews that we did uh for the podcast in an, in an act of extraordinary transparency which people can find at our website which is www.framingpaterno.com that's intended to be figurative not literal i'm an anti-conspiracy person but the website is framingpaterno.com and the podcast is with the benefit of hindsight yeah and i've gotten through uh five whole episodes and, and folks these episodes are an hour and a half to three hours long so uh they're packed with information and there's just no Buck, way buckle that we up can, buckle yeah, up if you get involved <laughs> we're, 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 there's no way we can even uh present your case on this podcast so i just want people to be interested enough to start it because i'm telling you you will not be able to put it down once you do let me say this about what you just said i uh am 57 so um, I remember Joe Paterno's national championship teams. The first one in 1982, I was 16 when the season started, 17 when it ended. And uh, I was really into the team back then. And then I remember he had that great set of linebackers for the second championship he won in the 80s. And, uh, and by the time this story broke, I had long since stopped following college football at all. I was in the middle of a career where – I, I had no time to watch sports and I was actually surprised that Joe Paterno was still there. <laughs> so my impression was, okay, this, this Sandusky guy was a, a monster. Um, these other guys are probably guilty, but Paterno, my God, he's got to be a hundred years old. This, it seems like this might've just got by him, but the idea that Jerry Sandusky may not have abused any of these children, weren't there like 10 at the trial and, how did you first get the idea that that even that part might not be true? Let's take a short break for this important message. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Mini Coders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Mini Coders. 
That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash minicoders and start your free trial today. Okay, well, first of all, I want to I want to point out something you said is really important. Uh, that here you are, you know, I would obviously you're in the the normal um level of of interest in college football, right? You remember Penn State's national championship games and you remember that they won two championships in the 80s and you even remember about the linebackers in the 1986 championship which they won against Miami, the University of Miami and what was the mo- most highly rated college football game of all time of all time okay that's important that's really important to this story because jerry sandusky was given credit for having won that national championship penn state was outmanned by miami but his defense intercepted vinnie testaverde five times and that's what won the national championship so you have a, a an extraordinary defensive effort in a game that was watched by more people than ever in the history of college football. That made Jerry Sandusky a thing. That made him part of college football history. There are a hundred things that if they hadn't occurred in this timeline, we don't end up where we are and Jerry Sandusky's not in prison. One of them, ironically enough, is if Vinny Testaverde throws five touchdowns in that game instead of five interceptions, and no one cares about Jerry Sandusky. He's not someone who's given credit for a national championship. No one cares to even bother to investigate or arrest him. <laughs> and if he is investigated and arrested on bogus charges, there's not a media firestorm because there's no audience for it. The only reason why there was an audience for this story is, one, it involved Joe Paterno at the very end of his career winning his coach in the history of college football literally the week before, and that the assistant coach was somebody that most people and every member of the sports media had in their memory. He was he was a thing. And so that's really important to how this story goes down. If he's not a thing, as I refer to it, the media coverage of this is totally different. And so so how did I get from this doesn't make any sense from Paterno's standpoint to, to Jerry Sandusky being innocent. It was a long process, but it was pretty darn linear and logical. There are two pillars to the case against Jerry Sandusky. And I've always believed that from the beginning. The first pillar is the story I've already referenced is Mike McQuarrie, then graduate assistant at Penn State, witnessing Jerry Sandusky in some sort of a sex act referred to as anal rape in the in the grand jury presentment that exploded the media coverage in November of 2011. And, um, and that, obviously, if true, is game, set, match, right? If Mike McQuarrie saw Jerry Sandusky in a sex act with a 10-year-old boy, that's game, set, match. And for the media, they, they couldn't even comprehend a scenario where that wouldn't be true. That's basically Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the tablets. This is this is absolutely true what happened. We don't really need any more evidence than that because we can't even conceive of a scenario where that's not true. 
That's pillar number one. The second pillar, when you have multiple accusers, and Jerry, you already referenced 10. There were actually eight men, not boys, eight adult men who testified at Jerry Sandusky's trial. Okay, that's important. So when you have these multiple accusers that do not come forward all at one time or contemporaneously, which did not happen in this case. No one came forward contemporaneously, and they didn't all come forward at one time. You must look at the first accusation. And the first accusation by so-called victim number one, a guy by the name of Aaron Fisher, was the only allegation of Jerry Sandusky in, uh, engaging in sex abuse of, of kids, young boys, for two years. Two years, there was a grand jury investigation in which Aaron Fisher was it. That was it. He was one teenage boy who was making a claim that nobody believed that was, that was ever changing. It changed constantly and in every possible way from the nature of the abuse to when it occurred, when it started, when it ended, where it happened. Everything changed constantly. The story was so nonsensical that Aaron Fisher twice tried to testify at in the grand jury and was unable to do so. He broke down in tears, and the grand jury did not indict. Finally, a third time, with his therapist in the room with him, he read a statement of his abuse that was, in my opinion, clearly written by the therapist, where he is able to finally, quote-unquote, testify about his abuse by Jerry Sandusky, but it's important to point out the grand jury still didn't indict at that point. The grand jury, I mean, and, and it's famous that basically a grand jury will indict anything if they want, if the prosecutors want them to. And in this situation, the grand jury did not indict because Aaron Fisher was not believable. No one wanted to hang this entire case on Aaron Fisher. So what happens is that this, this, the investigation is going nowhere, going nowhere. They're ready to close it up. They can't find a second accuser to back up Aaron Fisher, despite enormous resources being used by the, the attorney general's office. And let's, let's be clear. They have an enormous advantage in this investigation in that Jerry Sandusky is, is, is the founder and director of this charity, the Second Mile, right? So they're able to subpoena the records to get the names and I'm sure the phone numbers and addresses of hundreds of former Second Mile kids. By the way, Second Mile was for both boys and girls. People get that misperception, but it was for both boys and girls. But since they're targeting sex abuse by uh, among uh, by Sandusky on boys, they go and they interview hundreds, hundreds, literally hundreds of Second Mile kids. Now, who are these? kids. These are now adult men who come from horrible backgrounds. That's where that what's why they were in the second mile to begin with. They're from at-risk homes, broken homes. There's drug use, there's divorce. There there's probably real sexual abuse in a lot of cases. This is a rancid pool from which these men are coming and a lot of them have major economic problems. And so investigators go and they they are unable to find a second accuser for a long time until two years in and the Mike, Mike McQueary story 
falls in their lap. And then once the Mike McQuarrie story, under very strange circumstances, by the way, uh, falls in their lap, now they have those two pillars of the case. And they can go back to some of these guys and go to new potential accusers and say, look, we have an accuser, Aaron Fisher. I'm not sure if they used his name or not, but they, we, they, we have an accuser and who would be Aaron Fisher, victim number one. And we have a witness who says he saw Jerry Sandusky you know, um, anally raping a boy in a Penn State shower. Now, I'm sure that shocked the hell out of every single former second mile kid, now adult male, that they invent, that they uh, questioned during this investigation. And the vast majority of them said, wow, that's interesting, but never nothing ever happened to me. I mean, the vast, 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 vast majority said exactly that, including some of the guys who ended up being victims and getting millions of dollars from Penn State said exactly that. But a couple were able, in my view, to figure out what was going down here. And they basically said, really? So Jerry's a pedophile. Boy, that's a shocker. You never did anything to me. But hold on a second. Jerry's got some money and the second mile's probably got some money. And what if Penn State gets involved in this? This could be really, really good for me. So I'm going to be kind of wishy-washy about what may or may not happen. I'm going to dip my toe into this situation and see where it goes. And one of the most key accusers was the second person to claim a sex act with Jerry Sandusky, so-called victim number four, who there is an audio tape that was actually at trial where he has a lawyer with him when he's speaking to investigators. Why he has a lawyer, I have no idea. He's accused of nothing. He has no legal vulnerability whatsoever. By the way, this is a, a plaintiff's attorney, someone who would eventually make millions and millions of dollars from this case, representing a lot of Sandusky accusers. And we have a tape that was recorded by much by accident because when they're investigating and, and questioning victim number four, he's not telling them what they want to hear. He's not telling a direct story of a sexual act. He's kind of, you know, he's, he's being vague about it. And his lawyer stops the questioning and says to the investigators, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is a very close paraphrase, can we turn the recorder off and have a conversation? Yeah. And they say, sure, except the recorder, for some reason, wasn't off. And we actually hear the, the plaintiff's lawyer talking to the investigators and saying, look, um, can we lie to victim four and tell him we got a lot more than what we have so that it'll kind of jar him into telling the story of his abuse? And the investigators say to the lawyer, yeah, sure. We do this all the time. No problem. <laughs> so, um, and that's a fact. You can look it up for yourself. I mean, that I, that's a paraphrase, but that's that's what happened. That was actually introduced at trial, which in a rational world would have been a massive bombshell. But the media just kind of, frankly, they thought it was funny. Oh, isn't it funny that this uh, recording was made by accident? And um, And so what, of course, what happens is they go back to the interview, and all of a sudden, victim number four, after being told uh, a lie about the nature of the evidence against Jerry Sandusky, all of a sudden tells the story that they need, which is a second story 
of Jerry Sandusky directly engaging in sex acts with a, with a, with a boy. Um, and uh, and at that point, you know, it's Katie bar the door. At that point, you know, it, it, they're off to the races because now they have the two pillars, Mike McQuery and Aaron Fisher, and they have someone backing up Aaron Fisher. And at that point, uh, we leave the rational, the, the gravitational pull of the rational earth. And as far as how I personally went through this process, I first went through McQuery. McQuery was everything to me. And I realized that from every possible angle, the McQuery story doesn't even come close to adding up. And the main reason it doesn't add up is the focus of our very first episode of With the Benefit of Hindsight, which is called The Date. The date of the McQuarrie episode. Now, I, I mean, there's some, most people get where I'm coming from on the date. I don't know where you stand, Tom. But to me, if you're going to tell me that a, a rape of a boy occurred in a Penn State shower <laughs> about a decade before it's becoming public, I need to know when this happened. Okay. If you're not going to have a contemporaneous report, the date is really significant to me, especially if you understand the timeline of events here. And the first date they gave us when the story exploded in November of 2011 was totally wrong. And it's not just a matter of opinion. The prosecution had to admit publicly and at trial that they got the date and that their key witness, Mike McQuarrie, got the date completely, totally wrong by 13 months at least. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. How could I think of Baba with a girl like you? And let's be clear, when Mike McQuarrie gets asked about the date, it's not, you know, he gets woken up in the middle of the night and um, one time gets said, hey, Mike, when did this happen? And he goes, uh, March 1st, uh, 2002. That's not how this transpired. That's not how March 1st, 2002 got into the grand jury presentment. That was after months and months of investigation by the prosecution and by Mike McQuarrie racking his brain, I'm sure, although... By, by the way, I'm actually giving McQuarrie potentially too much credit. I, I, there is a scenario where they they knew damn right well that March 1st, 2002 was not 
the correct date, but that they needed that to be the date for statute of limitations reasons with regard to the charges against the administrators. So I'm actually giving McQuarrie the benefit of the doubt. I always presume that people are incompetent before I presume that they are corrupt. But the most important part of this whole situation is that um, they get the date totally wrong the first time. And now, as my investigation continues, I believe, and Malcolm Gladwell believes, who wrote about it in his most recent best-selling book, Talking to Strangers, that the second date that they came up with, uh, which was February 9th, 2001, 13 months different than the first date, is also totally wrong, <laughs> completely wrong in a way that fundamentally changes the narrative and really in the bottom line of this whole thing is i now believe that mike mcquery waited six weeks between the time he witnessed whatever he did in the penn state locker room with jerry sandusky and when he went to joe get go to see joe paterno six weeks and right there that destroys any concept that mike mcquery had urgency in his report. And the urgency of his report is the only credibility that it has. If it doesn't have urgency, he didn't see a rape or a sex act with a boy. And if that's not enough, and this is something I should have figured out a lot long, lot before, lot longer before than I did, and, and the defense should have figured this out because it was very simple and it was incompetence by an overwhelmed defense. But there's something else that happened just before that that uh, February 9th situation with uh, or uh, with uh, Mike McQuery supposedly seeing Jerry Sandusky in the, in a shower with a boy and that is that morning in the newspaper it is revealed this is of course before the the, the days of of Twitter and the internet was still pretty young at that point in 2001 uh, Mike McQuery very likely learns that the wide receivers coaching position at Penn State has now opened up because Kenny Jackson is leaving Penn State to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Well, that's the job that Mike McQuarrie wanted. And it's, to me, an extraordinary coincidence <laughs> beyond comprehension that uh, the timeline is this. On the morning of February 9, 2001, Mike McQuarrie sees in the paper that the job he wanted just happens to open up. And then that night, he supposedly sees Jerry Sadusky raping a boy in a Penn State shower. And then the next morning, he just happens to call Joe Paterno and say, hey, can I come over and see you, coach? And Paterno just supposedly tells him, which Sue Paterno told me directly, emphatically did not happen, that uh, Joe tells Mike, if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. I don't have one for you. Uh, that, to me, is impossible, especially when the facts of McQuarrie's own testimony blow up that entire narrative. Because McQuarrie said that on February 9th, or the night of this happened, uh, that, uh, that this was a very quiet day on night on campus, that there was nobody around. The prosecution used that as evidence that dun dun dun, Jerry Sandusky was expecting privacy and to be able to rape a boy, you know, without any concerns of someone coming in to see him in the Penn State lockers. Why he wouldn't do this at home, I don't know. But you know, he chose the Penn State lockers. Maybe you know, I have no idea what what the thinking on that was. But this is the prosecution theory. Well, we we know that on February 9th, 
was one of the busiest nights on campus of the year at Penn State of 2001. There was a sold-out rock concert across the street from the Lash Building where this occurred. And in the Lash Building itself, there was a hockey game going on at exactly the time when this supposedly occurred. There would have been enormous amounts of activity. Gary Schultz, the one of the administrators who was uh, was uh, forced to plead guilty to a misdemeanor he knows he didn't commit in this case, who would be an expert in this area, told me Mike wouldn't even be able to find a parking space that night because of all the activity. And there's absolutely no way he could have possibly testified uh, correctly that February 9th was a very quiet night on campus. However, the date that I believe that it occurred, which was six months earlier, six weeks earlier, six weeks earlier, which would have been December 29th, 2000, would literally have been probably the quietest night at Penn State's campus you can possibly have. A Friday night between Christmas and New Year's when all the students are gone. And that's the night that I believe this happened. I believe the evidence is overwhelming. As I said, Malcolm Gladwell, among others, agrees with me. By the way, Gary Schultz agrees with me. Graham Spanier, the former president of Penn State, agrees with me. Uh, and Jerry Sandusky agrees with me. Bizarrely, I'm the one that had to, to tell Jerry Sandusky uh, what the date was because he, for some reason, couldn't figure it out on his own. And the defense team was so incompetent, they didn't figure it out either. But that was a key moment for me because once the McQuarrie pillar is gone, and let's be clear, I'm I'm leaving out a huge part of this equation. I found out who the boy in the shower was, and the boy in the shower, Alan Myers, makes it very, 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 very clear from a decade of actions and words, at least a decade, if not more than a decade of actions and words, that he was not abused by Jerry Sandusky that night or any other night. And so we have the boy in the shower, Alan Myers. We have the date being completely screwed up. We have Mike McQuarrie's ever-changing story. We have, uh, and we do this on the podcast, Franco Harris, NFL legend, Penn State legend, Hall of Famer, who confronts Mike McQuarrie at Joe Paterno's funeral, asking him, okay, Mike, what did you see? And Franco, who is not somebody you're going to lie to, because I know Franco very, very well, and he's got enormous stature, uh, especially in that kind of a situation. I mean, can you imagine being confronted by Franco Harris at Joe Paterno's funeral in this atmosphere? I mean, it's almost like a truth detector situation. And Franco comes away completely, totally positive that Mike McQuarrie did not witness any sort of a sex act between Jerry Sandusky and a boy. So once the McQuarrie... Uh, pillar is destroyed. Now all you have is Aaron Fisher. And that's a whole nother story, which I, I went to, to Lock Haven, Pennsylvania on numerous occasions. I've spoken to at least a dozen people very, very close to Aaron Fisher, including aunts of his, including his now ex-wife, uh, including best friends at the time of the uh, of the accusations. And none of them believe Aaron Fisher was actually abused by Jerry Sandusky. And I am convinced, as I believe his wife, now ex-wife, is convinced, uh, from, and she tells us in no uncertain terms that she's heard both Aaron and Aaron's mother, who was a key figure in this whole situation, talk about the fact that Aaron Fisher was sexually abused by his stepdad, a guy by the name of Eric Daniels, who ends up, just after Jerry Sandusky is convicted, pleading guilty to 100 counts of child, child uh, sexual exploitation, including against his own daughter. 
And uh, and so what I believe happened here at best from Aaron Fisher's standpoint is that Aaron Fisher was sexually abused by his his stepdad and he transferred that abuse at the urging of his mother on to Jerry Sandusky. Uh, and and that's partially why some so-called experts were fooled by Aaron Fisher, including his therapist, the guy by the name of Mike Gillum, who's a quack who is a huge part of this whole situation. And Mike Gillum was not just the therapist for Aaron Fisher. He was also, I'm sure by coincidence, Tom, the therapist of that second accuser I told you about, victim number four, who really clinched the case for the prosecution. They both just happened to have the same therapist to help facilitate their stories of abuse by Jerry Sandusky. So, that's I, I hope that that's uh, uh, understandable and linear, but that's that's how I went from, OK, this is a Joe Paterno story and I'm going to look into whether or not that part of it makes any sense to then realizing that the whole story doesn't make any sense. Because once the pillars of Mike McQuarrie and Aaron Fisher are gone, the entire case literally collapses. And we have seen the settlement documents that were leaked to us by um by someone within Penn State of the of the people who got the men who got uh, over 130 million dollars in settlement money and I got to tell you Tom I flew from Los Angeles to Philadelphia uh, to to stay spend uh, about 36 hours in a hotel room looking at boxes and boxes of documents from the settlements and I expected them to be ridiculous you know, if we put it on a scale of one to 10, I figured, okay, these are going to be absurd to, to at least an eight. Because at this point, I pretty much knew that Sandusky was innocent. But when I went through those documents, uh, these go to 11 out of 10. They are completely absurd. And we go through this one by one in the podcast with the benefit of hindsight. And frankly, a lot of those that got paid are not just not credible, they're laughable. Totally and completely laughable. And we even have an interview with the guy who gave away the money, Ira Lupert, who was basically running the university as a board member for through much of the scandal, where he admits, even he admits, that he knows that a lot of the guys that got the money were on the gravy train and were not really victims. Which is astonishing when you think about it, because if, if some people are willing and able to get major money for a story you know is not true, then why couldn't they all have been doing the same thing? But that never occurs to anybody who's invested in this dark fairy tale, because if if they're wrong, and this is maybe one of the key elements to the perfect storm, the people that are in charge at Penn State, everyone thinks, well, Penn State would have defended themselves, right, if they were innocent. No, 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 no. No, the people at Penn State were using other people's money to cover up their own panic and screw up at the beginning of the scandal when they fired Joe Paterno and Graham Spanier. So they become invested in all this whole thing being true. And they get to use other people's money to do it. And they get praised by the media for doing it too. So it's a win, 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 win for those who are still at the university. Everyone who, who might have defended themselves is gone. Paterno's gone. Spanier's gone. The administrators are gone. Sandusky's long gone. So there's nobody left to actually defend themselves. But in the media's mind, Penn State is pleading guilty. So therefore, 
well, there's nothing to see here because obviously oh, Penn State true. wouldn't have pled guilty if unless they were guilty of something. But that's not the world in which we live. All right. So let me let me ask you a couple of things about what you said there. First of all, <clears throat> on the dates, um, everybody's going to have to listen to the first episode called the dates that I agree the dates are crucial. And um, the other thing that jumped out at me uh, under the theory that without the McQuery uh, boy in the shower and without this Adam Fisher, you're not going to get this stampede of other people coming in. So also important in your podcast is neither of these accusations start out as any kind of sexual crime. They start out as inappropriate behavior at best. So McQuery says he sees him standing behind the boy or something to that effect. And, and uh, in the mirror, like that immediately to me raised questions like, wait, this is based on something you saw in a mirror? You didn't even turn around or walk over and look? And then the, uh, the uh, boy uh, Fisher, his initial thing is that it's not a sexual crime. In fact, let me go back to McQuery. He's asked, did you see a sexual act? And he says no initially. So these accusations evolve over time, right? Well, Tom, this is an important point. And I'd, I'd ask people to just put on their their basic common sense thinking caps. Um, let's deal with McQuery first. So the major con the complaint about McQuery when the story broke, because everyone was accepting that the story was true, was why didn't he beat the crap out of Sandusky, right? I mean, that was everyone, that was the gut reaction that most people had. Why did he just leave Sandusky there with the boy? Yeah. He didn't even identify the boy. He didn't beat Sandusky up. I mean, Mike McQuarrie is a huge guy, six foot four, 230 pounds. You know, you can't miss him because he's got blazing red hair. He's in his mid, late 20s. He's all full of muscles. Sandusky's an older guy, almost an elderly guy at this point, And he's naked in a shower. I mean, most people, their initial reaction is, boy, that's really strange that McQuarrie didn't beat the crap out of him. Or like, like I said, at least get the boy out of that situation. Instead, he just leaves and calls or, his dad. Or call now, the cops. Why, you call okay, the cops at okay, the but, very least. Right. But so it drove it to this day drives me crazy that especially no one in the media looks at that scenario and goes, well, wait a minute. Maybe he didn't react like he saw a rape because he didn't see a rape. I mean, this is I, I can't imagine why this is so difficult of, a, of a, an intellectual exercise for people to engage in. But to me, this was rather simple. I mean, there's a, there's it's really easy to figure out why he didn't react the way you would expect him to because he didn't see what he's claiming now to see 10 years later. I mean, I can't emphasize enough. I, that might be the most important fact that most people to this day don't fully realize that McQuarrie's testimony for the first time publicly about this is 10 years later. 10 years. Purely on a, on the, on from a memory standpoint, even if you give them every benefit of the doubt, people forget what they saw ten days ago, not ten years ago. But then when you add in investigators who are desperate for a witness of any kind, they have they've had nothing for two years, and they are experts at manipulation. And you have Mike McQuarrie, who was very vulnerable 
to manipulation on a number of levels. I mean, Mike McQuarrie is a guy who we now know bet on college football games. There is there is a video on YouTube that makes that as clear as possible where he throws a pass in the last game of a blowout against Rutgers. It causes a fight between Joe Paterno and Rutgers coach. This was on national television on a play that was not supposed to be a pass. Uh, and, and, and it just happens for Penn state to cover the spread. So, I mean, this is right, right there. I mean, and there were, there were outlet like Deadspin who believes every word of the scandal is true did a story on this. And I kept screaming at the, my internet screen, if you believe he bet on football games, then why are you trusting him about anything else? I mean, I mean, this guy is obviously corrupt to begin with, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. This was a guy who we know, and I have a tape of, an, of a, a conversation I had with Don Van Natta of ESPN, who was deeply investigating this whole thing till he got scared off by ESPN. I'm sure censoring him because they needed to protect their narrative. But Don Van Natta had proof that Mike McCreary thought when his now ex-wife, ex-wife, that's an important point, uh, calls him and tells him that investigators want to talk to him, he's convinced and scared out of his mind that this is about pictures of his penis that he's been sending to a woman, not his wife, through a Penn State phone. So so you have this guy with, this, with a gambling background. Uh, so he, he thinks maybe they finally caught on to him for that, right? I mean, that's potentially a crime. Uh, you got the the if he gets found out on the the pictures of his penis uh, using a Penn State phone, Joe Paterno is probably going to fire him. So so he's scared out of his mind when investigators come to him. He is relieved beyond all comprehension when he finally speaks to these guys with a lawyer present, and it turns out they don't want to talk about penis pictures or or gambling on sports. They want to talk about something they heard through an email from a, uh, an internet message board user that he may have seen Jerry Sandusky in the shower with a boy. That was it. That was the tip. Not, not a rape. Just saw Jerry Sandusky in a shower with a boy. And, and so he is incredibly pliable at this point. And these are expert manipulators desperate for a witness. And so it is hard, it is not hard to understand how Mike McQuarrie, in my view, he uh, he gives them, let's see, let's to use an analogy. So Mike McQuarrie, I believe here's what happened. I believe Mike McQuarrie saw a brush fire. Jerry Sandusky acting inappropriately with a boy who was actually almost, uh, who was actually 13 years old. Uh, two and a half years away from winning a varsity letter on his high school football team. And and a guy who he thought of as a son. He saw him acting inappropriately naked in a shower. That's a that's a brush fire, right? That's something you you might tell somebody about, hey, tell Jerry to knock it off. That's stupid. Right? That's a brush fire. Then prosecutors, 10 years later, investigators get him to change that story from a brush fire to like a two-alarm fire. Yeah, it could have been sexual. Yeah, maybe. I, I guess it was sexual. If you say so, if, you, if you're telling me that Jerry Sadusky is a pedophile and you're telling me that I saw the Loch Ness Monster poke his head out of the water 10 years ago, yeah, I'll buy that. It, yeah, it was sexual, I guess. And then prosecutors take that two-alarm fire that McQuarrie gives them and they write it as a five-alarm fire in the grand jury presentment. And the media takes the five-alarm fire as being gospel 
when all it really was was this brush fire that was Jerry Sandusky acting stupid and immature and and naive because he that's who he is. Um, and so and let, let, and let me just take this in one other angle. If we use our common sense, okay. Um, McQuarrie tells his dad's friend, Doctor Dranov, allegedly the night that this occurred, three times that he did not witness a sex act. He doesn't act like he saw a sex act. Both Tim Curley and Gary Schultz swear up and down that when they meet with McQuarrie about a week and a half later, he didn't say anything about a sex act. He didn't act like there was anything involving a sex act. He didn't go to police. He goes to Joe Paterno, his his boss, not, not law enforcement. There are numerous witnesses, numerous witnesses that um, Jerry Sandusky and Mike McQuarrie joked around physically together at a Easter Seals charity football game well after this event. There are newspaper records of Mike McQuarrie committing to, and the defense thought they proved actually participating in second mile golf events after this event occurred. And so everything is pointing to Oxum's razor. Okay, if everyone at the time is acting, including McQuarrie, like nothing happened, then and you only hear 10 years later that something horrible happened, I'm going with the original version of the story, nothing which happened. is nothing happened. Um, and and then, of course, key to that is the fact we know the boy in the shower again. I can't emphasize that enough. Alan Myers, who we do an entire episode uh, on in uh, with the benefit of hindsight, and it is it could not be more clear. I mean, Tom, I could not write a scenario. I could not write a, a persona. I could not write a timeline of events. If I if you gave me three days to do it, I could not possibly come up with one that was more inconsistent with Alan Myers ever having been abused by Jerry Sandusky than the truth of what we know. I mean, this guy wrote op-ed uh, well, I, letters to the editor, I guess is probably the better way to phrase them. Letters to the editor in local Pennsylvania newspapers defending Jerry Sandusky uh, before his arrest in no uncertain terms. Uh, he coached a youth football team with Jerry Sandusky when he was a, a late teenager. He he uh, had Jerry Sandusky stand in as his father in his senior high school football game. He asked Jerry Sandusky to be the keynote speaker or the, uh, at the, his graduation from high school, which Jerry Sandusky did. He lived with the Sandusky's for three months while he went to Penn State, where Jerry Sandusky got him in. He went to uh, Jerry Sandusky's mother's funeral where he had to drive well over 10 hours from his Marine barracks. This guy was a captain in the Marine Corps, or sergeant in the Marine Corps, sorry, sergeant in the Marine Corps. He drives over 10 hours to go to Jerry Sandusky's mother's funeral. Uh, I mean, he, he invites Jerry Sandusky and Dottie Sandusky to his wedding, where he takes a photo arm in arm with Jerry Sandusky while he is in he, uh, Alan Myers is in his Marine sergeant's uniform. I mean, come on. I mean, this is not to mention on the day Joe Paterno is fired, he comes into, into the defense office of, of Joe Mandola, Jerry Sandusky's defense attorney, and he gives a very clear, extensive, detailed statement saying, 
I'm the kid in the shower McQuarrie's talking about, and Mike McQuarrie's not telling the truth. And let me tell you what did happen. Um, and so I, literally, I'm not exaggerating, Tom, when I say I can't come up with a scenario that more clearly proves the McQuarrie episode didn't happen than than the story of the actual accuser. And yet well, well, let's, his let's... name has only been used in mainstream publication one time, which is Malcolm Gladwell's book. I got censored from using his name when I went on the Today Show after I interviewed Jason Dusky the first time because the news media is just so desperately invested in nothing shattering this fairy tale that they sold back in November of 2011. So let me... Uh, say what I've got to think is on everyone's mind, but let's assume that all the, everything you've just said is true. Uh, Sandusky never uh, raped or abused anybody, but what he doesn't deny and what the uh, alleged victim uh, d- doesn't deny is he was naked in a shower with a 13 or 14 year old boy. And that this mm-hmm. wasn't the first time that in 1998, there was another mm-hmm. incident where uh he a, a boy about the same age told his mother uh that he you know was in the shower with Jerry Sandusky naked right. with an adult man uh mm-hmm. he turns out getting reprimanded not not charged with anything but they tell him Jerry don't take showers anymore with young boys here he right. is two or three years later doing it again right if he's not a rapist what is with this guy what's his problem <laughs> um he's he's I believe very stubborn, very naive, very sure of his own morality. See, I think that's actually part of the problem here. He knows that um, he is, he almost believes, I think, himself to be beyond reproach. He, that he's so moral, that he's so good to these kids, that it's so absurd that anybody could be thinking that there's something untoward going on, that I think he finds it offensive. And uh, and a bit ridiculous. And um, and let's be clear, he thought of these these boys, especially Alan Myers, as his own son. He and Dottie did not have biological children; they had adopted children. But I, he absolutely the relationship between Alan Myers and Jerry Sandusky is that of a son. And it's not that unusual if you if a, if a man and his son had just had a workout. For them to go take a shower naked in a massive, like, people don't need to understand what the definition of shower in this case is. I, I think that that's a big problem that maybe even I have underestimated because I think people must think that they're in a small shower stall, like in a confined space. That's not it at all. These athletic showers are massive rooms. There are no stalls. There's just shower heads on the wall everywhere. I mean, it's a, if you were going to try to rape somebody, you know, who was, who was not wanting to be raped, which you would have assumed, because by the way, Alan Myers, like every other accuser of Jerry Zadusky is a heterosexual boy. Okay. Which is something the media won't, doesn't want to touch, but they're all heterosexual teenage boys. So if, if you were trying to commit a sex crime, and, and and rape a boy, this would literally be one of the worst places you could possibly try to do it. Not to mention the fact that it's a semi-public place and someone could, like Mike McQuarrie could come in at an almost any moment. And I guess my final point on this, because obviously I've thought way too much about this over the last 11 years, 
And it just took me a few years to even have this, what I consider to be a eureka moment on this whole thing. Let's pretend that Jerry Sandusky's deal as this criminal mastermind, by the way, which he ha would have to be to get away with this for decades and decades. But let's pretend his thing is to have showers with boys, right? And that this was his MO, right? Which is what the media portrays and what most people believe. Well, um, then why is it that there's not one, not one allegation at trial or in the settlement documents, not one of him ever trying to take a shower with a boy at his home. Not one. At his home, he would be far safer and it would be a far easier crime to commit and get away with. But guess what the problem is with a sex act in the shower at his home? Penn State isn't paying for that. Penn State was only paying money for allegations on Penn State's campus. And once the shower story involving Mike McQuarrie gets injected into the public consciousness, guess what happens? When you're paying lots of money for stories involving rape in a Penn State shower, you create that kind of market for it, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get lots of stories of Jerry Sandusky raping boys in Penn State showers. And then you're going to create this perception that Jerry was doing this all the time. When in my belief, I now believe that this was a pretty rare situation. And the reason why it happened that night was because Jerry started the day across the state in Washington, PA, where he grew up and was having a book signing for his brand new book, ironically called Touched which is a whole other story. Alan Myers was with him because it was Christmas vacation. That would have been December 29th, 2000. They drive from Washington, PA to State College, which is a hell of a drive. They have a workout at Penn State. And guess what they decide to do after a long day of travel and workout? They take a shower. That's it. And as fate would have it, Mike McQuarrie, um, who I believe was bored that night after watching football all day, ESPN was carrying the Peach Bowl between Georgia Tech and LSU uh, that night. And that ends at uh, almost exactly the right time. I think it was like 8.39 or something. For that game to end, McQuarrie to be bored, having nothing else to do, to go over to the Lash building to get whatever he thought he was going to get, tapes or sneakers or whatever, and to be right there when that shower between Jerry Sandusky and Alan Myers just happens to be occurring. And look, I have no problem with Mike McQuarrie thinking that's inappropriate, wanting to mention that to somebody. When he talked to his dad and Dr. Dranoff, I don't know for sure, but there's no way that this happened in the timeline that is now publicly accepted. There's no way that was February 9th. There's no way he went to Joe Paterno that next morning. There's no way that the Kenny Jackson job was not a huge part of his motivation to go see Joe Paterno. Um, and there's no way that Alan Myers was ever sexually abused by Jerry Sandusky. I mean, that's, that, that's just the reality of it. But, but I, I get why people to this day and always will be uh, upset by the showering thing. Um, there's just one other th thing about this. Jerry comes from a different generation. He grew up in a wreck home where there was nudity everywhere. And I've talked to lots of people 
who say that it was not unusual at all in this era, late, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, for boys to be naked in the shower with other guys in, in the Penn State facilities. It was just not forbidden. It was not thought of as that unusual. I think one of the many elements of the perfect storm here, Tom, is that these allegations come out after the Catholic Church scandal has rocked Pennsylvania and people think of this thing differently. But the allegations themselves, like Jerry, you mentioned the two times Jerry was you know, found to be in a shower with a boy, 1998. And what I believe to be uh, very early 2001 was when Penn State was informed of this. That's before the Catholic Church scandal is a thing. And so the people dealing with it aren't seeing it through the prism of the Catholic Church pre-scandal. But the public sees it through the prism of the Catholic Church scandal because it's 10 years later when these allegations become public. You see what I'm saying? That, that, that That's a huge problem in here. In here. Penn State, if, if this was post-Catholic Church scandal, and they get Mike McQuarrie coming to them, and it's the second time that Jerry, as you know, someone has complained about Jerry being naked with a boy in a shower, I think that they're I think that there's probably a different way to handle it. There's probably a greater urgency. But Penn State knew Jerry Sandusky was. I mean, they knew he was a goofball with boundary issues. And, and you know, it was just inconceivable. I, I, I mean, I, there's so many elements of this case that yeah, are just absurd. But if Jerry Sandusky, let me just finish with this. If Jerry Sandusky was really a, a serial pedophile, he would have been found out way, 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 way before the 2009, 2011 era. I mean, he had hundreds and hundreds of second mile kids at these camps. And you know how anyone who's been to a camp knows how rumors spread like wildfire at, at, at camps. And if any, if he had even inappropriately touched somebody, every kid would have known about it instantaneously and it would have been a narrative about jerry and there was nothing even remotely close to that uh, because it never happened well and to your point about the catholic church thing i think that is something you do very well on the podcast to to uh make a point of of what the impact was and I went to grade school in the 70s. Now, I went to Catholic school. There's two things here. I went to Catholic school in grade school and high school. So we didn't have a pool at my Catholic school. But at the public school where a lot of my friends went, they had a pool there. And the policy back then was all the boys had to swim naked. That's, I mean, they that was, if you were going to swimming class, you swam naked, not without a bathing suit. I never really understood the reason for that. But it was kind of a thing that people were uh, apprehensive about. It's like, oh, I got to go to swimming. I got to be naked for all these people. So the whole nudity thing, I think, does take another, uh, takes on another tone the later you go. And especially after the Catholic Church that's thing. An you know, that's an interesting, interesting story. Uh, I've heard similar ones. And um, let me just add one other thing. You know, there's a, um, a so-called documentary about this case called Happy Valley. And, um, and, and I actually, <laughs> I was very close to being hired as the director for this thing. And I'm told by people who were involved that I talked my way out of it because I was too pro Joe Paterno and they weren't looking for that, that narrative. And this was back when I still thought Jerry Sandusky was probably guilty. Well, 
one of the things that I find fascinating about this case is that if I can actually take my uh, foes work, their product, and I can actually use it to prove the absurdity of their own case and to prove my case is, is true. And there's so many uh, examples of that in Happy Valley, but you just reminded me of one of them where they play a uh, clip from an, from an NBC nightly news feature on Jerry Sandusky. This was after he had retired. Okay. And, and so they do this feature on the former assistant coach who left the game early to devote his life to kids. It was like this, this, you know, basically a, you know, an ode to Jerry Sandusky and they're playing this clip, but of course now it has ominous music behind it because, oh my God, you, all of this seems so sinister in retrospect. And one of the things that NBC does is that they show a clip of Jerry Sandusky in what, e what appears to be either a lake or a large pool at one of the second mile camps. And there are at least eight kids draped all over him, like hanging from his arms and his neck and his legs and his waist. Like he's He's like the big teddy bear, right? And of course, this ominous music is playing. Oh my God, these poor kids! Look at this—they were—they were hanging all over this this sexual predator, this monster. And I'm laughing, and I'm going, "Do these people not have a brain? If there was, as I just referenced, if there was even a rumor about Jerry Sandusky being weird or being handsy or being inappropriate, there's not a chance in the world." Any of those kids would have ever gotten anywhere near Jerry Sandusky in the pool or the pond. You're literally showing evidence that the whole narrative is ridiculous. And so uh, thank you for reminding me of that. And the other thing about it, and I just wanted you to make a comment about due process when we wrap up here in a minute. But uh, at that school that I went to, Catholic school, uh, there was a priest that was there in the early to mid-70s. And this guy later got named as one of the priests who had committed uh, sex abuse to children. And I remember this guy and I, I you know, he never did anything uh, inappropriate to me and to none of my classmates that I know of, but he was known for wanting to rub his hands in boys hair. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure just boys. I'm not sure if girls or not, but it was kind of a joke um, mm -hmm. and he would kind of make it like he's the monster. And then you know, the boys would be like laughing and running away from him. Don't let him get right. your hair. Right. And when you describe Jerry as a, uh, uh, a goofball with boundary issues, it makes me wonder, is that what that priest was? Or maybe he was guilty. I have no way of knowing, but that mm -hmm. clicked with me and in, in your podcast that I had this memory of this, this priest who I won't name because I don't know if he's guilty. Um, but the same thing, it's kind of like there's, there are people with boundary issues. Some of them become president and, uh, <laughs> um, people don't necessarily assume that they're rapists. That's another really good story that I'm glad you referenced. I, I also came from a Catholic school background. I went to an all boys, uh, Catholic high school and an allegedly Catholic college at Georgetown. And I also early on uh, went to a Catholic grade school with a lot of nuns, mostly, and some priests, I, I think. Anyway, so my, my, my point of this is I don't know what the situation was with that particular priest, but I do know that there's a fundamental difference between the Catholic Church 
pedophilia scandal or a febophilia scandal, which is probably the more accurate term, than the Jerry Sandusky story. And that is the, the, the dirty little secret that the media doesn't ever want to fully tell about the Catholic Church scandal is that all of those priests were gay. And the boys they targeted were either gay or they were showing signs of being gay. Because you, as a pedophile or, or someone engages in a febophilia, the most important thing is that your victim be open to your abuse. That's the most important thing. So you, there's a, there's a reason why there's a thing called gaydar, right? So the, the, you, you, whether this guy, this priest was guilty or not, you would not have been a target because you weren't giving any signs that you're gay. And, and, and to be clear, by the time a boy is 10 or 11 or 12, you, you can tell whether or not he has any inclination to being gay. And so the priests targeted the boys that they thought from, from their own experiences showed signs of being gay. And that's how they got away with this. They weren't raping heterosexual teenage boys, which is what Jerry Sandusky is accused of doing. And I know every single one of them is straight. And oh, by the way, later in the podcast, you haven't gotten there yet, Tom, we get into Jerry Sandusky's medical records, which make the acts described in the allegations completely preposterous, no. and impossible, uh, whether they were gay, especially since they, they weren't gay. But even if they were gay, they'd be they would be preposterous. And there's, by the way, no evidence that Jerry Sandusky is gay. There's been no gay lover that's ever come forward <laughs> involving Jerry Sandusky. There's not a shred of that. I believe Jerry Sandusky is probably asexual. He has almost no testosterone. He has virtually no <laughs> testicles, which no one ever mentions. Uh, you know, none of the accusers ever mention. I, we didn't even know about that till years later when we got his medical records. And to me, that's a smoking gun in this case that the accusers aren't telling the truth because they all would have mentioned that, but none of them did. And and the reality is that these allegations, you know, I, I've now found, Tom, that the maybe the easiest demographic for me to convince that Jerry Sandusky is innocent are gay men. Because gay men look at the allegations and they go, no, no, this isn't the way it works. And uh, and and I've had numerous gay men, including a, a gay male reporter at a, at a major media outlet who's been investigating this case for over two years and has totally convinced Jerry is innocent, that effectively what we have here is a bunch of gay porn stories written by heterosexual men whether they were the accusers or the accusers' lawyers. And that's why gay men look at these stories and go, no, no, this is not, not the right Yeah. Well, the last question I got for you, because, I mean, the implications of this are rather terrifying, that if they can do this to Jerry Sandusky, and if he's completely innocent, I mean, is it possible to get due process if you're accused of, rape or especially uh raping a child no um not when the media creates a firestorm um now i i i was involved i was brought in to be indirectly involved in a somewhat 
similar accusation from someone who was a very prominent person who was also totally innocent, but they had known about my work on the Sandowski case. And they brought me in for basically my advice, my counsel on, okay, what the hell do we do here? <laughs> because we got an innocent person and the story didn't come anywhere near to the media threshold that Sandusky did. And my advice to them, which they took, and this person ended up being exonerated, which was, and this happened in a state where you were able to do this, was avoid the grand jury at all costs. All costs. Because as soon as a grand jury indicts, the media and the public thinks that that is real and significant and you lose your bet your your entire benefit of the doubt the entire presumption of innocence and without your presumption of innocence you have nothing in a case like this and so that was a situation where we were able to contain it because the media didn't go crazy there was some local coverage and this was a prominent person um but we uh, eventually it all turned out okay but that person had money by the way, the other thing that was important, really important in that situation, that person owned their own company so they couldn't be fired. See, the firing of Paterno and Spanier effectively doomed Sandusky, right? Because why the hell would Penn State fire their legendary football coach and their well-respected president if Jerry Sandusky wasn't innocent? If if the person I'm referring to had been fired, I think it probably would have like if he was the second in command of this company instead of the, the owner, I think he would have been toast because there, there would have been blood in the water. And so um, your point is an incredibly important one and a good one. It's scary that this could happen not just to Jerry Sandusky, but to Joe Paterno, Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, and Gary Schultz. In my opinion, these are five great men. Men, by the way, I have had – I never met Joe Paterno, but I've I've had – I hate his son, Scott. He and I uh, hate each other's guts. Um, uh, and I've had huge dust-ups with his other son, Jay Paterno, who knows Jerry is innocent but is afraid to say it. So uh, I've had huge dust-ups with Graham Spanier, cursed him out before his trial, worse than I'm sure he's ever been cursed out in his entire life. Um, I've always gotten along pretty well with Gary Schultz. Jerry Sandusky and I have had dust-ups uh, usually via email. So this is not a situation where I'm a sycophant for any of these people. I have, I have brutalized them, but I believe that these were five great men who got thrown under the bus in a situation that, um, that frankly, when you, you know, it's, I, I believe that this was a lot like what happened with COVID, Tom. I think some of your audience might appreciate that perspective. If, if, if one of the things I tell people who are of the conservative libertarian bent is the number one reason you should listen to with the benefit of hindsight is that you will understand what happened with COVID because yeah. it's the same story. It's the same story just with different details and um, right is wrong. Wrong is right. Up is down. Down is up. The white hats are wearing the black hats and the black hats are wearing the white hats and there's a panic and the media becomes invested and look out. There's no going back. And it just continues and continues and continues. And uh, and so to me, it's an incredibly important story way beyond those five. But just one other comparison to COVID, I think the essence of what happened with Penn State was it was the original virtue signal. Penn State virtue signaled. 
They got hit with an allegation that was horrible that they had never dealt with before. Uh, and they immediately threw everyone under the bus, these five great men, they threw them under the bus because they were signaling their virtue to the rest of the their community, their state, and the country, and to the media. Well, that's a lot what drove COVID, too. I mean, the reason why, I mean, masks are all about virtue signaling. Uh, you know, getting yeah. your booster shots is now about virtue signaling. Uh, you know, uh, closing schools was somehow a, a signal of your virtue, which is just beyond comprehension to me. And so it's it's a lot of this has to do with the same psychological, mostly liberal uh, mental <laughs> deficiencies that we've seen in our society that facilitated the COVID panic and the destruction that followed. Uh, the Penn State panic, I believe, <laughs> was very, very similar. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And and folks, we've uh, covered, I don't know, one-tenth of one episode uh, worth, and there's a whole bunch here. And if it sounds like you don't want to put in the time, I guarantee you, you listen to the first episode and you'll be hooked and you'll be glad you're hooked. Um, John, thanks so much for uh, spending this time and thanks for the great work you've done on this. And thank you for your interest. Thanks for listening to With the Benefit of Hindsight. And I just hope people will... When they listen, they'll give it an open an open mind, and they will rate and review the episodes, subscribe, and uh, please share it with other people because there's no way the media is ever going to help us get the word out about this. Uh, so that, that's all I ever ask from people is is just give it give me a fair hearing, and if you like what you hear, please share it with others. Yeah, and we'll have it on the show notes page. Uh, so that you can uh, link to uh, John's website and his other work and, of course, this great podcast. Thanks again, John. Thank you, Tom. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.